Do you remember the dozen wine glasses we drunkenly bought the other day because we liked the glasses they had at the restaurant? I think it was the wisest purchase that we've ever made. I I think it was a good one, but it's just so funny because we literally went on to a restaurant supply website. Which, fun fact, if y'all are looking for a good set of wine glasses that aren't too expensive, we got 12 really nice glasses for like, what, 50 bucks or something? Yeah, they were like 60, I think, with shipping. But like, and they came really fast, like within the week. So just saying, if y'all are ever like, ugh. I want to be an adult and have matching wine glasses, which I'm not an adult. I don't have matching wine glasses. (laughs) You do now. But I do now. (laughs) But if you're ever like, ooh, I want that. Restaurant supply stores. It's really funny the things that we purchase while drinking. Oh, yeah. It's so dangerous how easily you can shop on your phone now. I'm 90% sure that um, I purchased all of my furniture while drunk um also there (laughs) is this good i'm gonna get this chair yes (laughs) you just got lucky there is this website slash app called top hatter and it's so dangerous when drinking because it's basically just a live auction and you just all you have to do is hit the button and it's like your bid it's a game too it is and it'll be you know, you hit your bid and then it has the timer that runs down. And the timer's only like 60 seconds. And then if someone bids over you, it resets the timer. Anyway, I drunkenly earlier this week was on it and scrolling and I accidentally hit something that was like garnet earrings. <laughs> and I didn't know how much it was because it was like, you placed your bid. And I was just like, please, God, please, anyone bid over me, please. And of course, that is the one bid no one else bid on. So I got it and I was like, fuck, what what do I do? So I went to, I was like, because it immediately launches you into the pay for this. Yeah. And thank God there is a button and that's like, cancel your bid. And I canceled it and I was like, okay, but don't do this too much or you won't be allowed to bid. And I was like, that's fine. Turned out it was... I almost spent $18 on some, like, really, really tacky earrings. <laughs> oh, my because God. Because I was scrolling. Um, that's dangerous. Also, ads are dangerous because, honestly, mm-hmm. the same day we bought those wine glasses, I was scrolling on Facebook and bought a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it's like shoes, wine glass in the span of 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how, because I don't usually do that on Amazon. Like on Amazon, I feel like I'm a lot more careful with my cart. I feel there's, there's, sometimes I will drunkenly buy things. I buy things off my list on Amazon when I'm drunk. Yeah, like it's never, I've never gone in and been like, I want these shoes and these shorts. and, And also drunk me is like, okay. But what's a better deal I can get on these? And I'll wake up and be like, oh, I spent $24 on three pair of shorts. Okay. Like, <laughs> like not bad. All right. Not mad about it. Um, Drunk Tyler has my best interests at heart. Have you ever... Usually. Sometimes. Rarely. Rare. When it comes to shopping. Rarely. Have you ever drunk purchased something and then forgotten about it until you got the package? Yeah, it's like a surprise. And you're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what did I no, order getting, for myself? <laughs> getting that text, it's like, you have a package in the package locker. And you're like, what? <laughs> you know. go to it and you're like, Amazon? 
Hmm. <laughs> because since we have a family account, my first thought is usually someone actually oh, someone my put address. the wrong address. <laughs> yeah. And I open it and I'm like, no, no, that was drunk Tyler. That was drunk you. He did this. Well, hey everyone, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we make a lot of drunk purchases, and we bet you do too, because we all do it. And honestly, after this episode, there is a, I would say a 35% chance that a drunk purchase will happen. Yeah. Because also, we're recording this episode the day after payday for me, so. Dude, like, same. Saying. I got paid two days ago, and I'm like, let it rain! And then I'm like, oh shit, count the count the money, can I pay my bills? <laughs> let it rain! Wait, nope, rent. Hold on. <laughs> Hold. Scoop it up. Scoop, scoop up the rain. <laughs> <laughs> basically i just get like three rolls of quarters and i throw those in the air but they're not actually quarters they're pennies because <laughs> come on i know because a roll of quarters is 20 bucks so yeah so i don't do that don't do that but also when i throw pennies up in the air it kind of hurts on the way down so it makes me not want to let it rain it's a lesson yeah yeah okay <laughs> i'm just saying if you really want to make it rain uh, and you break a 20 into ones 20 single bills feels like a lot, and you can make it rain and then put it in your wallet. (laughs) And it also makes you feel like you have a lot of money, even though it's $20. I know. Like when you're sitting in your wallet and you're like, ooh, it's fat. This wallet has cake. Oh, no, it doesn't. That's all singles. (laughs) Honestly, flashbacks to life being a server. I bet. How many times I got looks from people that I could tell them like, that's the, you're not hot enough to be a stripper. <laughs> Where'd you get that? Aww, Looks. That's um, rude. Uh, um, yeah. So with that, this is going to be an interesting episode. We hope you guys are ready for it. It will be. We have a new thing coming up. But before we get into the new stuff and topic and all of that, I first want to give a huge, huge shout out to Holly. Holly! Who is our newest Chardonnay Syndicate member on Patreon. Holly, thank you so much. We love you. You are a rock star. Thank you for joining our Patreon family. Um, I feel like we had a name for our Patreon family like two or three episodes ago. I don't remember. It was the Blood and Wine family. Was it the Blood and Wine family? Yeah, you were close. We are family. (laughs) Um, Don't don't sing that. We don't have rights. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Just kidding. We're a group of related people. (laughs) Um, Yes, Holly, thank you so much. Welcome. I hope you are starting on those murder minis. We now have like 22 of them up. Yeah, something um, like that. That's that's quite a bit. And I mean, this this is episode... 54. And if you are interested uh, in joining our Patreon family, like Holly, you should check out our Patreon. Patreon.com slash blood and wine pod. You can check it out. We have our murder minis on there. Yeah. They're wonderful. At this point, it's, I don't know, like 12 hours of content. Oh, definitely. That is Patreon exclusive. Yep. So, and it's two cases each. So that's like 40-something cases, 44 cases, if we have 22. Patreon only. So check it out. Get that insight. Do it. 
And while you're at it, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to us. Um, that way you get notified of all our new episodes every Tuesday. I know you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and there are a few other platforms. We're pretty much on all of them. So go check it out. Follow us on Spotify. Subscribe. All the things. Now to the I newness. Guess, yes, now to the this exciting thing. This is our thing. new segment that we're introducing to Blood and Wine Podcast. It is called Blood and Wine. The Blood and Wine Book Club. Yes. Yes, it is. The Blood and Wine Book Club. And we have a really exciting one to talk about the first time. We do. So, yes, new segment, kind of. It's not going to be in every episode. We're going to sprinkle them in every so often when yeah. we find great books. And the one that we're going to talk about and do a quick review of this week is the book called The Girls Are Gone by Michael Broadcorb and Allison Mann. And quick side note, uh, we were sent copies of this to review. So did want to have that disclaimer. Yes. But the book, y'all... It is good. I have it never is. read anything like this before. No, and it was... When I first got the book, um, looked it over, saw it was about two girls that vanished and kind of everything that went on and conspired to be a part of that. Yeah. And basically figuring out... I was like, okay, this will be, be fun. This will be interesting. Getting into it, I think one of the scariest parts of the book is that it starts out very normal well like normal life yeah i mean it's this pretty nasty custody battle between these two parents and it's something that is not shocking you would not think that would be the lead into this kind of book but it just builds the custody battle evolves into something so much more well and you know as you're saying it's not something that was shocking it it was as far as a custody battle is concerned that part yeah. was shocking but the but i get what you're saying that that this custody battle led into these two girls these are the teenage sisters leading to them being kidnapped is a very bizarre twist especially because there were mm-hmm. five kids so it's not like all five of them were kidnapped it was just the mm-hmm. two girls and i will say the custody battle is so crazy because i literally i've never heard of anything like this and you just have to keep reminding yourself that this actually happened yeah and like that was one thing i want to say is you're reading this and it is so easy to think you're reading a work of fiction yeah because it it's one of those things that this book i feel like really helps drive home and kind of centers on that idea that real life a lot of times is a lot crazier than any kind of fiction or story you could imagine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I 100% agree with that. And Well, and one part, and this is just a little ways in, so I'm not really spoiling anything. The kids are being interviewed by like a court psychiatrist because they're scared of their father. And they don't want to be around him. At this point in time, the dad hadn't seen them for like a year. And so they're trying to dive into, you know, what happened? What's this history? But as they start asking all the kids questions together and individually, it's, you know, they can tell these answers are scripted. That they had been told things because some questions they can't even answer. And it would be very simple things like, what did you cook for Thanksgiving? What what meal did you have? And they don't. They don't know their lines, so they didn't know what to yeah. say. And it's just, it's really scary that that's mm-hmm. 
something that happened to these kids. And then, of course, like leading into the kidnapping and all of the insanity that ensued after that, it's just, whoa. I also think one thing that's super crazy about this is just the level of conspiracy. How it's not, you know, these, the, the two kids being kidnapped by their mom and like that's the end of the story. It's how many people were involved in a part of it and kind of uncovering what do they know and why aren't they willing to give information give it's fascinating i will say the book does have a lot of court transcripts in it so it does don't go in it expecting to read it like a novel because it very much is a non-fiction work and honestly what it reminded me of most is the book form of a lot of true crime podcasts where the hosts will talk and say their things and then play an audio transcript of the 911 call or something like that. It very much felt like that in book form. So if that's a kind of true crime podcast you're into, absolutely, you are going to love this book. And I think for people that are into true crime, missing persons, and like just the mystery of it all, highly recommend this book. Yes, absolutely. Check this one out. Again, it's The Girls Are Gone by Michael Broadcorp and Allison Mann. It is on Amazon, so it's super quick to pick up. It's in paperback, and yeah, also it's fairly recent. It happened in April 2013. So if you're into like true crime style books, uh, especially ones with a lot of detail, like super detailed crime transcripts that give you all the information you could ever want, um, mm-hmm. and and just really diving deep, this is the book for you. Definitely check it out. Absolutely. And because this is a special episode and I wanted to play off of that book and the topic. So our topic for this episode is kidnappings. Yes. And I've been thinking about this one fairly regularly in the past couple months. I mean, we've had some big kidnapping cases uh, in the news. There was Jamie Kloss up in Wisconsin. Yes. That was just this year that she was found watching that whole ordeal live. Because I can't think, there are a lot of big kidnapping cases that will be featured very heavily in the media. And I can't think of being at a point in my life where I like watch the news and keep up with the news regularly while one is happening. That was like my recent one. So kidnappings and I feel like I could say this for every episode, but y'all... This one gonna be fucked up. It definitely will be. And if you think about it, kidnapping is something that is a common fear amongst a lot of people. I mean, just think about all of the fiction books that are written about it. Like, you know, The Girl on the Milk Carton. Is that what that one is called? Face on the Milk Carton. Face on the Milk Carton. Caroline B. Cooney. Yeah. Yeah. And that was... Great book series, by the way. It's a fantastic book series. And I remember reading it and just being like, whoa, this is crazy. But the reality is things like that are happening. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is back in, what was it, the 70s or the 80s when the laws were finally changed that you didn't have to wait 24 hours to report someone missing, especially if it's a kid. Yeah. You know? And, like, it's just something that's so scary. And Mm -hmm. not only can you be walking down the street and be murdered, but you could also be walking down the street and be kidnapped. Like, it just literally sometimes makes it hard to go outside. I mean, and it shouldn't be because, like, obviously live your life, don't live in fear, but... As long as you're just no, like scary paying things attention. happen all the time. Just pay you're attention. You're more likely to die in a wreck on the way to work than you are 
to be kidnapped or murdered. I mean, you know, still be aware, but don't live your life in fear. Exactly. And that's our podcast. Bye, guys. So um, before we get into this really horrible um, and pretty scary topic, I'm going to introduce my wine because I'm definitely going to need it while presenting my case and probably listening to yours. Oh, yeah. So I picked a new grape varietal that we have not done yet on the podcast. I Ooh. I picked the Route 1 Carmenere, and this is a wine that's made in Chalchuga Valley, Chile, and it's at the Route 1 Vineyards. And these wines mm. are, they're special because they are crafted exclusively from grapes grown on original ungrafted root stems and this creates this purity from root to wine that results in like very pure fruit aromas and a really rich finish Ooh! so what does ungrafted actually mean well they weren't grafted (laughs) so the reason that chile is very unique is that it has certain geographic and climatic forces that have allowed it to remain one of the few grape growing regions in the world where the original European rootstocks have survived and they've been unaffected by philolexuria um, or however you say that grape disease, but it's a vine disease that destroyed countless vineyards across the world. And it forced a lot of grape growers to graft or transplant and bind their vines into disease resistant rootstocks. And so in Chile, they don't have to do that. Like they just don't get that disease. And so Carmenere grape, it was extinct for a very long time. And it was rediscovered in Chile in 1994. So the Carmenere grape actually originated in the Medoc region of Bordeaux, France. And that's where it was used to produce really deep red wines and occasionally used for blending purposes in the same manner as the Petit Verdot grape. Um, mm-hmm. It's a member of the Cab family of grapes. And the name Carmenere originates for the French word crimson, which is Carmen. And it also refers to this very brilliant crimson color of autumn foliage and just like, you know, all the fancy stuff. (laughs) I could make a character that is a detective who goes around the world and I could name her like Crimson San Francisco. (laughs) And it's the same thing. Basically. The Carmenere grape, it's also known as the Grand Vendure, which is a historic Bordeaux synonym. It, again, it's a deep red color with gentle tannins, very rich flavors of plum, blackberry, and spice. And it's very sophisticated in its spiciness and the vibrant Mm. uh, berry flavors that it has. It pairs well with pasta, vegetable soup, spicy entrees, and grilled meats. And it's also a perfect match for ingredients like garlic, bell peppers, fresh herbs, and eggplant. So this would work. You don't have to drink it with a meat dish. Like if you just had like a nice like make a nice ratatouille or something. Yeah. 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 Remember when you explained to me what ratatouille is and I didn't know. I know. And you and mama looked at me like I was a freak and I was like, it's good. (laughs) But Um, yeah. So this is actually a screw top. And if you see the bottle, it's like really pretty. It's got this like light blue little accents. And then you've got the vines with the roots. Because it's yeah, root and it's one. root one because it's you know original. The root. Well, it's yeah. because okay, yep, no grafting, which that's their thing. So it says, um, oh, it doesn't say it on this bottle, but all of their wines are the ungrafted wines. 
Nice. So. Well, while you get that open and pour yourself a glass, I'm going to talk about my wine. Yes. Mine is the 2012 Kenwood Vineyards Ulupa Zinfandel. So this wine, it's a Sonoma County Zin, and it's aged in a 75% French, 25% American barrel for 20 months. Ooh. So it has that nice, rich, oaky flavor. And Kenwood Vineyards, it's great wine. I mean, it's Sonoma County, so it's going to be amazing wine. Uh, but the smell of this one is ripe raspberry, thimbleberry, which I don't know what the hell a thimbleberry is, and licorice, which joins spicy notes of white pepper and cinnamon. And then the taste is delicate tannins with an elegant and long finish. And interestingly, on this wine, it's 97% Zinfandel and 3% Syrah, which they Ooh. add just a little bit to give just a tiny bit of complexity and backbone to the wine. Oh, I and like that. And it's also a strong one. It's 14.5%. So Dang. I'm going to get crunk. Uh, but it pairs really well with barbecue pork, tomato-based casseroles, and grilled bratwurst with mustard, which are three very specific things. I know, um, with mustard. But I like it. I am into all three of them, so except barbecue pork. I don't like barbecue. But the tomato-based casseroles and grilled bratwurst with mustard signed me the fuck up. But the bottle's really pretty. This label for the 2012, they changed it. For their 2013 wines and their wines moving forward. Oh. So it's basically a collector's edition. Mm -hmm. um, it's not. It was like $10. But it, oh, and it mine has a was, very pretty... Mine was like, like 13 It has a picture of like their vineyards going on. It's in like pale gold with black text. Anyway, I'm going to open it up. It's also a screw top. Nice. Both of us with the screw tops. Yeah. Ooh, you're using your bending branch bottle. Mm-hmm. Glass. Bending branch. Glass? <laughs> yeah. Remember that time? We edited this out so y'all didn't hear it. But one time I had just filled a glass <laughs> to a, in a Tyler way, which means way too much. And it fell and half a bottle of wine dumped all over my wall and carpet. It was honestly yeah. a tragedy. And it's still stained. The wall. Because it's chalk paint. Y'all, if any of y'all understand my pain... When you spill something on walls painted in chalk paint because you can't scrub or the paint comes off. Yeah. I'm just saying. It's hard. Oh, it's my God. Well, let's um, cheers and try these wines. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. I can Ooh, definitely smell the so spice good. in mine. Ooh, I get the licorice, which I'm interested to see how it's going to taste because licorice is one of the worst flavors ever invented. Um, this definitely is a very structured wine. Ooh, I'm gonna go ahead and go into mine. So, very first taste you get is that oakiness, that very rich, then that spice kicks in, which that's Ooh. my favorite part of a Zinfandel, is that the spice. spice. Yes. And I know it was saying in the smell was where the white pepper is. I can definitely taste that. I love me some white pepper. Oh, this sounds so good. It's a great Zen. If y'all are into, it's a heavy one. Um, it's not too, like, lip-smacking tannic, but it is a very deep, rich, heavy wine. Definitely not something I would drink, like, sitting by the pool in the sun. No. That sounds just, like, a lot. 
I wouldn't drink it and then go for a run. I wouldn't drink anything and then go for a run. <laughs> I was to say, Water, I probably maybe. shouldn't drink anything and then go for a run. But really good, really nice, like savory wine. Nice. So this one, the root one, Carmenere, it is definitely the tannins are very gentle. And one of the first things I taste is the beginnings of this spiciness that it has. And it's not nearly as heavy as a Zen, but it's definitely heavier than a Pinot Noir, but not as heavy as a Cab. So it's kind of in the middle of a Pinot Noir and a Cab. It's... Okay. It's definitely so, more like a blend. More medium bodied, but it's not fruity yeah. like a blend. Because you know most blends mm-hmm. really pick up on that fruit flavor. Yeah, you get a lot of the dark fruit, blackberries, all that stuff. When I Yeah, mine is not fruity at all either. You would really like this then. I'm really not picking up on any of the fruitiness. Maybe a little bit of blackberry on the finish. But yeah, yours sounds amazing. This is a really good wine to have with dinner for sure. Like I can literally see myself sitting here eating pasta and drinking this wine. Oh my God, same. So, and I've had the Carmenere grape before and it's, I really like it as something that's different, but not like, it's not scary different. Like, there's nothing about this wine that is like, oh, God, that's such a new flavor. Like, not at all. Um, So I highly recommend it as if you want to branch out there, maybe you're a Pinot Noir drinker. I would try this if you're not ready for a cab. Perfect. Okay. Well, with that, we each have our wine. We have our topic. We have our book review. Tell me about your kidnapping case. Yes. So mine, I actually had a hard time titling it because I didn't know exactly what to call it but you'll see why so mine is about the murderer sean great so the sources i used were wikipedia washington post nbc news youtube i watched a video news 5 cleveland mansfield news journal and the cleveland 19 oh damn so this takes place in the small little town of ashland ohio it's about 66 miles southwest of Cleveland, and it has about 20,000 people living there. So it's... I feel like a lot of shit goes down in Ohio. A lot of shit goes down in Ohio. You are right. They've been in it's the their news, new state like, slogan. Ohio, a lot, of, a lot of shit goes down here. Yes, it is very accurate. So on September 13th, 2016, at about 6.40 a.m., a woman calls 911 to report that she has been abducted. At the time of her call, she had not been reported missing. Oh. This woman, known in this case, uh, her name's been redacted. Her name is Jane Doe. And she met Sean at a croc center, which is kind of like a Salvation Army. It's not the store where they sell the shoes. So not that kind of croc. This is a oh, croc Oh, okay, okay. I was like, what? <laughs> um, no, I'm, so I'm following. They met there, and they ended up grabbing lunch, and they talked about life, the Bible, and the weather. So a lot of very, you know, basic, get-to-know-you topics, sure. They ended up building a friendship. So I'm 26, my favorite chapter is John, and (laughs) it is sunny outside. (laughs) I am sure it went similar to something like that. So they ended up building a friendship, and Jane, I'm just going to call her Jane, she starts to think of Sean as a brother. After knowing him for about a month and a half, Sean, of course, tries to make some moves. He brought up wanting to be romantic with her. 
but she told him like she really just wants to be friends and he just laughed it off. Okay. So that's not a good sign. So they still hung out. She would visit him in his home and she did mention that it was dirty, like with bugs, which she was really surprised because he always seemed so clean. Honestly though, some apartments are like that. You keep it immaculate and you your neighbor have... has roaches, so you have roaches. Right. Um, that is absolutely a thing that can fucking happen, and it's so gross. So, on September 11th, Jane was at Sean's place, and she was just sharing some different Bible verses with him, and then he takes the Bible out of her hands. And so, at this moment, she knows what he's trying to do, like, and she is still not interested in being with him, and so she tries to get away, and Sean grabs her and tells her that she is not going anywhere, and he starts taking off her clothes. What the So she tries to fight more, and he starts to choke her. When he started doing that, she knew she was not going to be able to get away. Sean raped her vaginally and anally, and he even did weird things to her, like shaving her pubic hair into a heart shape, and he put makeup on her. He tied her up, uh, oftentimes on his bed or in his room with him while he was asleep, And he would set an alarm for every five minutes so he could wake up and make sure she was still there and that she hadn't tried to escape. Jesus. He even at times would tie her up in ways where if she did try to escape, she would choke herself in doing so. So she was very much um, restricted. But somehow, one night, she is able to grab his cell phone. She gets her hands untied and she gets herself freed. She grabs his cell phone and she calls 911. So the full call, it has been released. It's about 20 minutes long, but I'm just going to play a quick uh, two minute sample. And it is from a news broadcast. So you will hear the newscaster come in a couple of times with some dialogue, but I'm going to play the full two minutes because I think it's good to hear. 911, what is the address to your emergency? I just lost. Street laundry mat. What is it? Fourth, fourth street laundry mat. What's the problem? I think it's The 911 call is chilling. Is sure the laundry mat? No, I'm, I'm in the bedroom with them. You don't want to call the house is? No. Please hurry. A woman pleading for help. Her accused abductor sleeping in the same room. Does he have a weapon? He's got a taser. Are you injured? Little. Speaking in a whisper, the woman's fear is palpable. Is there any way you can get out of the building? I don't know without waking him, and I'm scared. Is there a bathroom in the house? Well, his bedroom is closed, and he made it so it would make noise. If he told me he had to go to the bathroom, he would do something to you? Yeah, because he had me tied up. You're tied up now? Well, I... The dispatcher encouraging the caller to stay on the line until police arrive at the abandoned house. Then silence. Minutes pass as the woman waits desperately. Finally, officers arrive and the caller works up the courage to leave the bedroom. Can you get out of the house? It's locked. Are you at the door? Yeah, I am. It's at the door. Is there a window there? Yeah, I'm looking out and they come, they'll come back. She said, 
After some 20 minutes on the line, the woman is rescued. That was chilling is the only word I can. I literally got goosebumps while listening to that. Um, that was horrifying. Yeah, it's it's absolutely horrifying, and I know we don't normally play 911 calls, but this one I feel is uh, very critical to this case, but yeah. I know it was kind of hard to hear Jane in this, but she's speaking in a whisper, so basically she's tied up, she's in the bedroom with Sean, and she's able to free herself and grab his cell phone, call the police, and... She's talking on the phone with them, letting them know that he's put booby traps at the door where it's going to make noise so she can't really get out. Um, Even at one point, she fears that she has woken him up and the dispatcher just tells her to put down the phone. And eventually she is able to, uh, at the same time the police arrive, she's able to get out of the bedroom and go to the front door and it's locked and she's just trying to get out. So she finally gets out of the house and... The police run in and they arrest Sean. God. And we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast before, but just about the job of a 911 dispatcher. How oh, yeah. nine times out of 10, you don't know the conclusion. You don't know what happened. No, you have no idea. And this must be just one of the most, It already it's a horrifying job, but calls like this, I mean, one of the most terror inducing parts of your job because i'm sure in her mind she's thinking i also can't speak too loudly because what if you know just from the receiver he hears yeah, it and what if up he hears just you know jane's life is in the dispatcher's hand exactly so oh, god sean was 40 years old at this time when he was arrested and the house he was in wasn't his house it was actually owned uh this house and the one next to it were owned by pump house ministries and they were believed to be vacant so he was a squatter in this home he was a homeless person that was squatting in a ministry home and then what the police found next would leave them absolutely speechless as if this tale is not already horrifying when the police entered the home they found two bodies of women who had been missing. Oh, fuck. They were underneath clothes and various items inside the home. And Sean was immediately arrested on a kidnapping charge. Obviously, they can't charge him with whatever is going on with these bodies, but they were like, nope, he's in custody. Kidnapping charge, because they knew he'd done that. Yeah. One of the bodies that they found belonged to a woman named Stacy Stanley. She was 43 years old, and she had not been seen since Thursday, which was September 8th. Uh, This was after she had a flat tire and went to the gas station on East Main Street there in Ashland, and then she was Mm -hmm. never seen again. Family members at the time had been really critical of the Ashland Police Department, and they said that their reports of her missing were not taken seriously until the bodies were found. Mm. And the second body that they found belonged to Elizabeth Griffith, who was 29 years old. And police reports did later state that both of these women had been strangled. 
and Sean had even videotaped the rapes of Stacy and Jane. Later that same day, Sean admitted to killing a woman at 1027 Park Avenue East in June of that year. On June 20th, firefighters had battled a fire at that home that partially destroyed it. It was another vacant home. When the police went back to this burned down home, they found a third body about 60 feet away Uh in the woods down inside a ravine. It was not buried. It was just there out in the open. So it had been laying there for a few months. Jesus. The Richland County Coroner's Office called Dennis Dirkmat, who was the director and forensic anthropologist for the Applied Forensic Sciences Department at Mercyhurst University, Pennsylvania. Sorry, that's such a mouthful. And he was there to assist in the identification of the human remains. And while he was there, he also found additional evidence that was collected at the scene. So Sean not only spent time in the home where Jane was found, but he also spent time in this Park Avenue East house, which was an abandoned one. Didn't have any owner, or if they did, they're no longer there. Yeah. The woman whose body they had found had spent time with Sean. The police were pretty sure they knew who she was, but Mm -hmm. they needed to positively identify her before they were going to say anything. Sean later confessed to killing another woman who had been a previous girlfriend, Candace Cunningham. Oh my god. Candace was identified as the woman they found behind the house. So she was the third victim. Sean was also connected to another murder. Oh my god. Rebecca Lysi. So this is the fourth. January 22nd, 2015 was the last time Rebecca had been seen alive. She was actually from Mansford and not Ashland. And her body was found 15 months later after she had last been seen near Mifflin. Her death was originally ruled a drug overdose. Uh, She had been found just in an open field, but authorities reopened the case after Sean confessed to the murders in Ashland County. So once those... That's crazy. I just wonder how many murder victims are out there whose case has been closed, whose cause of death is deemed suicide or overdose or accident. There's no one looking, but they're a murder victim. I know. I mean, because... And even going beyond someone doing it with that intent of, like, you know, kidnapping someone and then, I don't know, injecting them with an overdose of something to kill them. Right, and trying to make Uh, it look like suicide. Yeah. Or an overdose. Like, those, that's one thing, but, God, there are just, there are so many unidentified victims out there, and there are so many victims out there whose names are known, but they're not identified as victims. Right. Yeah, it really is unfair, and I hate that I I have this gut feeling that there are quite a few murders that have just been determined to be accident, suicide, or overdose. Yeah. So, the Marin County Sheriff's Department also confirmed that they were looking at another body that could be connected to the case. Damn, a fifth one? Yes. So, this is the fifth woman, and Sean had confessed to killing the woman he said was his very first kill. This woman was said to have been selling magazines door-to-door back in 2005. And Mm -hmm. Sean said his mom ended up being really upset because she never received her magazines. According to police, Sean said he saw the woman, lured her into the house, where he killed her and later dumped her body. Her body was found two years later in 2007 on Victory Road in Marin. So... 
clearly Sean is someone that people were drawn to. Um, Mm -hmm. Women always found him irresistible. He was this like charming guy, always smiling. He had big blue eyes and all the girls like Sean. So Sean's definitely giving me some real Ted Bundy vibes, which is real messed up. God. Uh, Yeah. Where he's seen as this just, although he wasn't. attractive, good guy. Yeah. He wasn't as cunning as Bundy, that's for sure. Um, No, but still, that's horrifying. Because I feel like we all have this image in our head of killers as this, like, identifiable. Like, that person would be a killer. And you really cannot identify them that way. No. I feel like those are the episodes of, I don't know, CSI or Law & Order that you've watched that are so like, (gasps) it's the hot man kind of thing. Right. I don't know. It's... We're just, I feel like we're just predisposed to think bad people look like bad people. Right. And and good people look like good people. And it's just like, no. No. There is not a look that defines a good or a look that defines a bad person. Like, that's just not reality. That's not the way yeah. it is. Um, yeah. I mean, the only person I can think of that's like scary mass murderer that looks like it is like Charles Manson. But even in his, like, you know, when all the murders and cult shit was happening, he didn't. Like, you know, you, right. you wouldn't pass him on the street and be like, a murderer. Right. You'd be like, oh, he needs to wash his hair. Basically. So, however, there were multiple women who did find Sean controlling, jealous, and violent. Um, even at yeah. an early age when he was 18. Oh. And that was the first time he was arrested for grabbing his girlfriend's throat. By the time he was 23, he broke into a 17-year-old pregnant girlfriend's home, choked her. Oh, my God. And later threatened to kill her, according to police reports. What the fuck? So, Sean spent less than a month in jail for this incident. Less for choking his 17-year-old pregnant girlfriend and threatening to kill her. He got less than a month in jail? He did. People get more than that for, like sneezing wrong basically for having a little bit of weed on them i don't know if people actually go to jail for jaywalking but i imagine if they did it'd be longer than a little under a month it's beyond ridiculous and to make matters even worse you know the teen's family sought a restraining order against him but his now ex-girlfriend asked the judge to remove the no contact order just a few months later so eight months after she did that Sean assaulted her again and her sister while holding a butcher knife after hiding all night under her couch. What the f- under her couch? Yes. Oh, I was already like not having it with the attack to them and had a butcher knife, but hiding under the couch? Yeah, and then coming out and attacking them. Oh, fuck no. So, uh-uh. Sean told the girls to shut up because he was in control. And he said, if anyone comes to the door, there will not be anyone here to answer it. So you better hope no one knocks on the door. Basically, if someone knocks on the door, he's killing him. This incident led to his longest stint in jail. Oh, six weeks this time? In 2000, his early release was revoked and a judge sentenced him to serve the remainder of his original four-year sentence. So he had originally gotten four years for that first incident, but served a month. And served ten minutes. Basically. And so now he's finishing Now he, he only sentence. gets four years? Mm-hmm. 
I feel like people get so much more for general assault. I know. People get more than four years for getting in a bar fight. Yeah. That's so fucked up. It really is. Like, that is is clearly someone who is going to murder someone. Well, and That's not even, like, a crime of passion or anything that, like, not that crime of passions are okay, but they're more like, oh, this might not happen again. This is definitely going to happen again. Well, and he basically made that clear, like, that that came true, considering we're now talking about five bodies that are connected to him. Yeah. All of that stuff that happened with his previous girlfriends and him being violent, that was 17 years before this horrific 911 call with Jane Doe. And several people who met Sean in these recent years, uh, up until he was discovered of all these murders, they described him as really lazy and unwilling to work, and that he preferred to just take advantage of really vulnerable women or kind people, especially if they had money. So that sounds exactly Mm. like what he was doing to Jane, because she was this really kind, sweet woman, and he is taking advantage of her completely. So Sean is also known to have fathered at least three children. Two of these kids were with girlfriends and one with a wife in a very brief marriage. He also had a girlfriend of five years. Her name was Christina Hildreth. And he repeatedly abused her throughout their relationship, starting once the two of them began to live together. In June 2010, Hildreth told officers that she had been assaulted repeatedly by Sean, including multiple blows to the face and being grabbed by the throat. Part of her hand was fractured when she said she'd raised it to defend herself, and she was able to get Sean to let her go to the emergency room, and she just initially told them that she had fallen. Which is literally like classic, no, she didn't. Yeah. Oh, God. Sean left her in the room for a moment, just with, you know, a nurse. And this is when Christina was able to tell hospital staff what really happened. But Sean escaped. He was apprehended four days later when Hildreth told police she believed Sean was hiding inside her couch. And officers found him there. Oh, my God. What is with this guy in the couch? Inside? Inside her couch. I don't even completely know how that works, but somehow he was inside the couch. So my couch is one of those because I got it like delivered online and stuff that it has a zipper in the back where that's where the cushions were. Oh yeah, that's right. It's empty. So I'm assuming that's how, and I'm definitely after this episode going to go unzip and make sure that there's not a person in my couch. Um, yep. That's fucking horrifying. It is. It also, is. Also, this is 2010, and he's caught. Again, how the fuck is he not in prison? How is he able For- to be out and do all the murders that happen in the next seven years? Well, for this offense, he was sentenced to 180 days in jail for first-degree misdemeanor domestic violence, but Are still- Are you fucking kidding me? Why the fuck is domestic violence a lesser charge than assault? I don't even know. I I hate it, too. And, you know, maybe now the sentencings are more- I mean, I honestly don't know. This was nine years ago, and like you were just saying, the fact that this guy- was able to do all of this stuff and not be in fucking prison for longer. Yeah. That well, and, enabled him to go kill at least five women that they know of. Well, and this is 
offense number two that they're that he's been arrested and charged on. Well, there's How? actually more. I haven't said anything. Oh. What I've been bringing up are his like longest stints in prison, but there were other like misdemeanor things. Like he definitely had a record. But yeah, it this this guy is just so messed up. He even yeah. called Christina from jail, which violated the protection order. So she obviously she leaves him, which saved yeah. her life. Good. He continued this type of behavior, charming women, beating them, and even, as we know, killing some of them. He had this very, like, Jekyll and Hyde type personality where he would be this charming, great guy that you really wanted to get to know, and then he would just flip and just be a monster who needed to be in control, who would abuse women, who would beat them, hurt them, kill them. Like, it was so sick, the the things that he was doing. Sean was taken to trial on the murders of Stacey Stanley and Elizabeth Griffith, and he originally pleaded not guilty, but then he later changed his plea to guilty to some of the counts. So he pleaded guilty to rape, four counts of burglary, tampering with evidence, robbery and breaking and entering, unauthorized use of a vehicle, two counts of gross abuse of a corpse, and specification committed with sexual motivation. So he didn't plead guilty to, like, kidnapping, false imprisonment, murder, all the other things? No. I mean, so he still... Had he confessed to some of the murders? He had. So he still went to trial... And on May 7th, 2018, Sean was found guilty on both murders. And on June 1st, 2018, he was sentenced to death for the murders of Stacy and Elizabeth. And he was also sentenced to a minimum of 90 years on those other charges. So those were just the first two that were discovered. Sean later went to trial for two additional murders, Rebecca Lacey and Candace Cunningham. And he was found (laughs) guilty for both of those. He received sentencing for the following uh, counts. Aggravated murder. He was given life in prison without the possibility of parole. Two counts of gross abuse of a corpse. 12 months in prison for each count. For murder, 15 years to life. And all of these must be served consecutively. So this guy is literally just stacking up to where pretty much, even if he's not executed, he's going to be in jail forever. Yeah. Sean was a charmer with a very evil side. And his own mother even said, he is good looking, but the devil is good looking too. Fuck. So that is the case of Sean Great, who was a serial killer recently in Ohio. Jesus. Well, cheers for Jane Doe being able to escape. And cheers. just being a fighter and being able to get that phone and the Jesus, things that okay. she had to go through to be able to make that 911 call are mm-hmm. just it's unbelievable the courage it took for her to make that phone call laying right next to him on his yeah. cell phone like you knew she was laying there and she was like well i may as well try because i'm probably gonna die anyway well and just how long had she worked throughout the night while he's sleeping to get that phone right and then how long well no first to untie herself yeah well and also how long was she holding it knowing 
this is my only rescue and just make a decision it's time like it's it's now or never god oh my god i know and just the fact that he had such a track record of violence and that he was still able to commit these atrocious crimes it drives me crazy it just drives me crazy because it's not like he had never been caught it's not like he was a yeah he had a history yeah which and i guess to be honest so did ted bundy like he kept getting caught and he actually kept getting caught because of tickets and stuff like being pulled over but anyway different serial killer but it's just yeah i i just hate that this guy was allowed to walk the streets when he'd been caught so many times yeah so what is your kidnapping case so my case is i think a very well-known one Mine is the kidnapping of J.C. Dugard. So the sources that I used are Wikipedia, ThoughtCo, Lad Bible, CNN, and CBS News. And though I didn't use it as a source, I highly, highly suggest if y'all want to hear more about this case and get J.C.'s perspective and her words on everything, uh, she wrote a memoir called A Stolen Life. Oh, dang. And absolutely suggest that y'all read that. Yeah. So, Philip Greg Garrido was born in Pittsburgh, California on April 5th, 1951. In 1972, he was arrested and charged with sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. Oh, when geez. he was 21. But the case didn't wind up going to trial because she declined to testify. Oh, God. Well, I mean, I don't get it. She was so young and probably terrified. I mean, absolutely. The next year, in 1973, Garrido married his high school classmate, Christine Murphy. And she would say that he was abusive and alleged that he kidnapped her when she tried to leave him. My God, what is up with these super fucked up abusive men? Oh, this is... I don't even want to say only scratching the surface. It's not even scratching the surface yet. I know you're not even scratching the surface. I'm just saying, like, this is so disappointing. Yeah. So a couple years later, in 1976, Garrido kidnapped a 25-year-old woman named Catherine Calloway in South Lake Tahoe, California. He took her to a warehouse in Reno, Nevada, where he raped her. For five and a half hours. When a police officer noticed a car parked outside this warehouse. And then noticed the broken lock on the warehouse door. He knocked on the door and Garrido came to the door. Calloway then emerged and asked for help. And Garrido was arrested, charged, and convicted of crimes in both federal and state courts. Wow. And I have a feeling he gets out and I'm real mad about it. Yeah. In court, he testified that he would masturbate in his car by the side of elementary and high schools while watching the girls. Holy shit. Yeah, he's a fucking monster. And he was convicted on March 9th of 1977 and began serving a 50-year federal sentence on June 30th of 77 in the Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas. I'm assuming he did not spend those 50 years. So, at the penitentiary in Leavenworth, that was where Garrido met Nancy Bocanegra, 
who she was visiting her uncle, who was another prisoner there. Wait a second, how? And then on, yeah, I'm not sure how they were able to like meet and talk and stuff. Well, and maybe it was one of those rooms where, you know, there's like a lot of people at tables and not like the on the phones with the mm. glass thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like the orange is the new black kind of meeting room. Exactly. Not the, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. But on October 5th of 1981, the two of them got married in Leavenworth. Why do people marry prisoners? I don't get it. I don't. I don't know. I mean, like. While they're in jail for something, like, real bad that they're guilty of. Like, I know yeah, everyone... Like raping a woman for five... Kidnapping and raping a woman for five and a half hours. Yeah, like, like what yeah. is appealing no, about that person? if you fell in love with a guy who was like, I was a drug dealer. It's like, okay, well, that's... That sucks. That's not good, but sure. But it's not rape and murder and all this shit. Yeah. On January 22nd of 1988, Garrido was released from Leavenworth and sent to a Nevada state prison, where he served seven months on a five-years-to-life Nevada sentence. I he don't understand. So it's like so he, he, he was doing was, his 50-year sentence, and then in the middle of that, they transferred him to do a five-year one? So he was doing his 50-year sentence, but was released early on that sentence. Oh! And his Nevada state sentence was one that would be served consecutively, but it was five years to life, and he served seven months. Oh my yeah. god. He was transferred to parole and released in August of 88, after spending only 11 years in prison in total. Wow, 11 of the 50. Jeez. 50 plus five to life. Yeah. Also, five years to life is a big fucking range. Yeah, it is. But now I'm going to shift to JC. So in September of 1990, J.C. Dugard and her family moved from Los Angeles County to Myers, California, which is a rural town south of Lake Tahoe, because they wanted to get out of L.A. and be in a safer community for their family. On June 10th of 1991, J.C.'s mother left for work early in the day, and 11-year-old J.C., wearing her favorite all-pink outfit, mm. walked up the hill from her house to catch the school bus. Yeah. At this time, J.C. was in the fifth grade, and because of her shyness, she was worrying about an upcoming field trip. That's it. That's what's on her mind. Yeah. When she was about halfway up the hill, a car approached her, and she thought that the man in the car is probably just going to ask her for directions. He rolled down the window and she kind of stepped forward. And then he shocked her unconscious with a stun gun. Holy and shit. And abducted her. Oh my god. This man was Philip Garrido. That and fucker. with him in the car was his wife, Nancy. What? Nancy held JC down in the car as JC drifted in and out of consciousness during the three-hour drive to the Garrido home in Antioch. The only time that J.C. spoke during this was when she was pleading that her parents can't afford a ransom. Wow, she was very smart. Yeah. Like, the fact that she's in this situation and she's thinking about the ransom. Yeah. Jesus. So Carl Proben, who was J.C.'s stepfather, witnessed this abduction because it happened so close to their house. He, that saw? he saw it. Yeah. 
He saw two people in this gray car make a U-turn at the bus stop where JC was waiting, and he saw this woman forcing JC into the car. He gave chase on his bicycle, but he wasn't able to make it to the car in time, and they drove away. Oh my god. And some of JC's classmates there at the bus stop also were witnesses to her abduction. So this was like just this... right out in the open. Yeah. By the time that the Garritos had arrived at their home, they had removed JC's clothing. They took her from their car onto their property, and Garrido placed a blanket over JC's head and ushered her into an area of the backyard that had a bunch of sheds and storage units, and he placed her in a tiny soundproofed unit. Oh my god! So within just a few hours of JC's disappearance, Local and national media converged on South Lake Tahoe to cover the story, and within days, dozens of local volunteers assisted in the search effort, which involved nearly every resource of the community. And within just a few weeks, tens of thousands of flyers and posters were mailed to businesses throughout the U.S. to find her. Oh my god! And since her favorite color was pink... The town was blanketed in pink ribbons as a constant reminder of her disappearance and as to show support for her family from the community. But no one could find JC. Oh my god. Immediately after he kidnapped her, Garrido forced JC into a shower with him. And this first time that he raped her, she was in handcuffs. And she would continue to wear these handcuffs. She's 11. She's 11. She would continue to wear these handcuffs throughout the first week of her captivity. During that period, her only human contact was Garrido. Sometimes he would bring her fast food and he'd tell her amusing stories. And that was it. That was her only human contact was the man who kidnapped her. That's gotta be such a a mind fuck. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. He gave her a bucket for her to use to relieve herself, and at one point he even provided her with a TV, but she was not allowed to watch the news, and so she didn't know that people were looking for her. She had no idea. Almost a month and a half after her kidnapping, Garrido moved her into a larger room next door, where she was handcuffed to the bed. And he explained to her that the demon angels had let him take her and that she would help him with his sexual problems because society had ignored him. I hate this guy so much. Yeah. He went on meth binges that he would call runs. And during these, he would dress JC up and spend time with her while cutting out figures from porno magazines. He made her listen for the voices that he said he could hear within the walls. And he also told her of his belief that he was a chosen servant of God. These binges would always end with him sobbing and apologizing to JC, alternating that with threats to sell her to people that would put her in a cage. Whoa. And remember, she's just handcuffed to this bed in this small room. Right. And also still 11. Seven months into her captivity, Garrido introduced JC to his wife, Nancy, who brought her a stuffed animal and some chocolate milk. 
and she would engage in the same tearful apologies that Garita would. But remember, Nancy was there kidnapping her. Right, right. It's not like Nancy's, like, not guilty or not aware. No, she's... She's so much a part of this. She would alternate between this motherly concern and just this coldness and cruelty. And she expressed her jealousy of JC and regarded her as the one to blame for this predicament. It was JC's fault that they were here together. Oh my god. When Garita was returned to prison for failing a drug test, because he's still on parole, he still meets his parole officer and has all these things. Right, and you had just said he was doing, like, all this meth and everything. Yeah. When he went to jail, Nancy replaced him as JC's jailer. The Garitos would manipulate JC further by presenting her on two different occasions with kittens. Like, for her to take care of. Like, here's your pet. Yeah. And these kittens would later mysteriously vanish. And when they discovered that she was signing her real name in a journal that she kept about the kittens, she was forced to tear out the page with her name on it. And that was the last time that she would be permitted to say or write her own name. Oh my god. 34 months into her captivity. So, almost three years. Yeah. The Garritos began to allow JC freedom from her handcuffs for periods of time. Three But they years. still, three years in handcuffs, and she's finally allowed out of them. But they still keep her locked and bolted in this room. On April 3rd, 1994, Easter Sunday, they gave her cooked food for the first time. What had she been eating? She'd been eating fast food, oh. scraps, just garbage basically and they informed her that they believe she was pregnant at this time oh my god wait and how old is she like 15 at this point she's she's 13 13 she's 13 and she's four and a half months pregnant (gasps) she doesn't know yeah she was kidnapped when she was 11 i don't know what kind of sex ed she'd already had but she learned the link between sex and pregnancy from television Oh my god. She's four and a half months pregnant now. At this time, while she's while JC is pregnant with her first child, her mom, Terry, is holding rummage sales and garage sales to pay for private investigators and distributing over a million flyers across the US featuring a sketch artist's image of what teenage JC might look like. Yeah. Because her mom hasn't given up hope. It's been three years. Mom is like, nah, she's out there. And she is. I don't think parents ever give up hope until they know. No. And I think for a lot of parents even then. Yeah. It's so fucking heartbreaking. Because you know logically, you know, you think, well, if someone's been kidnapped and gone for three years, they're dead. Like that. That's generally what you think. That's one. I mean, that's not. That's it's like, cool. And that's not how parent logic works. And two. JC wrote a memoir. She survived this. I guess, spoiler alert. JC lived. Which is part of the only reason why I can actually listen to you tell this story. Yeah. So her mom's sending out these flyers with these sketches of her. Back in Antioch, JC was watching programs on childbirth in preparation for the birth of her daughter, which occurred on August 18th of 1994. 
Her second daughter was born November 13th, 1997. And JC took care of her daughters using what little information she could get from TV. And she worked to protect them from Garrido. Oh, that was That was her only thing. Yeah. She was like, I need to protect my kids now. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm 13 and then, you know, three years later, I'm 16 and I'm a mother. I need to protect my kids. Yeah. So she coped with this captivity by planting flowers in a garden and by homeschooling her daughters. At one point, Garrido told JC that in order to please his wife, she and her daughters were now to address Nancy as their mother, and that she is to teach her daughters that she's their older sister. That they're all sisters and Nancy's their mom. Eventually, when JC and her daughters were eventually allowed to come into contact with other people, they would continue this story. This is so So that's how people knew them. Also, they got to be in contact with other people? Yeah. Eventually, after years, they started being able to be in contact. Garrido owned a print shop, and JC was basically the graphic artist there. One of the customers at his business claimed that he'd met and spoke on the phone with JC and that she did excellent work. And during this time, JC also had access to the business phone and an email account. Another customer said that JC never hinted to him about her childhood abduction or her true identity, which I feel like is shocking at first. And then you really think about it and you're like, her goal this whole time Protect her daughters. Protect her daughters. Yeah. And so if she does anything, it's not like her daughters are there at work with her under the desk. Exactly. And so she's, unfortunately, since the age of 11, been in this situation. She's had to become an adult. Yeah. She has. More so than most people ever will have to be. Yeah. So on August 24th of 2009, at this point, it's been more than 18 years years since jc was kidnapped oh my god garrido visited the san francisco office of the fbi and left them a four-page essay containing his ideas about religion and sexuality and he suggested that he discovered a solution to problem behaviors like his past crimes of rape what and this essay described how He'd cured his criminal sexual behaviors and how that information could be used to assist in curing other sexual predators by controlling human impulses that drive humans to commit dysfunctional acts. Those are his words. Okay. On this same day, he went to UC Berkeley or University of California Berkeley police office with JC's two daughters Eddie was seeking permission to hold a special event on campus as part of his God's Desire program. Because he's basically created this whole religion and everything. Right. He spoke with the UC Berkeley special events manager, Lisa Campbell. As she's meeting with him, she's like, his behavior is erratic. And she's looking at the girls, and they're sullen and submissive. And so... She asked him to make an appointment for the next day. Yeah. You know, come back tomorrow. Let's make an appointment and, you know, your speech on campus event that you want to do. Yeah, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Let's get your appointment for tomorrow. And he did. 
and he left his name down in the process. Did he write his actual name down? He did. Because he's just like, yeah, I'm going to give a speech. They need my name. We're going to do this tomorrow. Yep. And one of the police officers there at UC Berkeley, Allie Jacobs, did a background check on him and discovered that he was a registered sex offender on federal parole for kidnapping and rape. Yeah. When he and the two girls returned for their appointment the next day, Jacobs made a point of sitting in during the meeting. So she's like, oh, yeah, I'm just here to you know, do logistics for whatever your little thing you're wanting to do is. Right. She's sitting there, and she's watching the girls. And to her, they appeared to be so pale, like they had never been exposed to sunlight. Oh, God. And their behavior was just unusual. And remember, these are JC's daughters. Yeah. Who, at this point, are like 12 and 15 themselves. Oh, my God. I forgot that they yeah, they were that old. Yeah, they're not little girls at this point. No. So, since Garrido's several parole violations at this point were in and of themselves a basis for arrest, these parole violations being he was barred from being around minors, and he had to check in with his parole officer to go more than 25 miles away from his home, which Berkeley's 40 miles away, so... He's already in parole violation yeah, there, there, just there. just being there. So Jacobs phoned the parole office to relay her concerns, and she left a voicemail and a report of the entire meeting. So after hearing Jacobs' message, two parole agents drove to Garrido's house on that day. Yeah. And when they arrived, they handcuffed him and searched his house. But they only found his wife Nancy and his elderly mother at the house. The parole agents then drove him back to the parole office. And en route, Garrido's saying that the girls who had been there with him at UC Berkeley, they were daughters of a relative, and he had permission from the parents of the kids to take them to the university. And again, although he had been barred from being around minors or going too far away from his house without his parole agent's permission... The agents overlooked those violations. God damn it. And after reviewing his file with a supervisor, they drove him home. And they told him to report to the office the next day to further discuss his visit to UC Berkeley. And to follow up their concerns they had with the the two girls. Yeah. So he's not so off Garrido, the hook yet. Or, no, but it's close to being. God, this is insane. So Garrido arrived at the parole office in Concord, California on August 26th with his wife Nancy, the two girls, and JC, who was being introduced as Alyssa. The parole officer decided, like, was getting some vibes and was like, hmm, something's not right here, and decided to separate Garrido from the women and girls to get their identification and just chat with them. So now Garrido's in one room. Nancy, JC, and her two daughters are in another room. Oh my god, but fucking Nancy's still there. And so all this while, JC is maintaining this identity as Alyssa. Yeah. Because she is like, she knows she is not out of the woods yet. And she's telling investigators that the girls were indeed her daughters. And although she did indicate she was aware that Garrido was a convicted sex offender... She told them that he was a changed man 
a great person and he was good with her kids. And these comments were echoed by her two daughters. Then when the agents started pressing her for details that would confirm her identity, JC became extremely defensive and agitated and demanded to know why she was being interrogated. And then she told them this story that she was a battered wife from Minnesota and she was hiding from her abusive husband. Wow. That's why she's being defensive and just wants to know. Oh my God. The parole officer eventually called the Concord police because this... Things are not right. Something is fucking up. Yeah. They're, and they're once smelling the police, something. Yeah. And once the police sergeant arrived, Garrido admitted that he had kidnapped and raped JC. And after this, that was when JC was finally able to identify herself as JC Dugard. How who old been was she at this time? For 18 years. She's almost 30. My God. She has spent more of her life kidnapped than she spent before yeah than she spent with her own family like her actual family Mm -hmm. so garrido and his wife were placed under arrest and an fbi special agent put jc on the telephone with her mother this is the first time that her mom terry had talked to her in 18 years yeah jc was able to retain custody of her kids and was soon reunited with her mother so after almost two decades in captivity, she was reunited with her family, and her two children were free for the first time in their lives. They've never been free. And they're They've teenagers. They've never been free. Yeah. Oh my god. They're not, you know, they're not babies. They're teenagers. Yeah. When all of this news broke, when it was... Holy shit, J.C. Dugard's alive. It was suggested that she was showing signs of Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. And in an interview with Diane Sawyer, J.C. stated that her compassion and willingness to interact with her captor, that was her, her only means of surviving. Yeah. She said, the phrase Stockholm Syndrome implies that hostages cracked by terror and abuse become affectionate towards their captors. Well, it's really, it's degrading. You know, having my family believe that I was in love with this captor and wanted to stay with him, that is so far from the truth that it makes me want to throw up. I adapted to survive my circumstance. Yeah. Because she was, she wanted to survive and she wanted to make sure her daughters survived. Absolutely. This was all about survival for her and her girls. Which I've never thought about how destructive to a person the idea of suggesting Stockholm Syndrome can be. I haven't either. It's like, oh, you know, because we, we've we talked about Stockholm Syndrome. We talked about it when I did the case of Patty Hearst. Yeah. But in some cases, that can just invalidate someone's adaptation for survival completely. It's like, oh, well, they... Fell in love with him. And she's like, that is the absolute worst thing that anyone could think. Yeah. Was that I in any way wanted or enjoyed this at all. Yeah. Regardless of what you think my psyche or anything was. And to me, that was just very powerful. That is extremely powerful. Something I'd never thought of. Yeah, I've never heard that perspective. And that's also, I mean, it's, it's bias that I've never heard that because I've never 
been kidnapped. Like, I don't know to mm-hmm. think those types of things. And yeah, I still am just but like course, blown away at 18 years. 18 years. And of course, if you if you separate it and take a step back, you're like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, if you're kidnapped or something, an obvious thing, something that people are told is just, you know, comply, do what they say, yeah. do it, build a personal connection with them. And then, oh, you see someone that did that and you're like, oh, Stockholm Syndrome. You're like, mm, those two don't add up. That's not, that's, that's true. not the same thing. That's so true. So Garrido and his wife, Nancy, were charged with conspiracy and kidnapping and Garrido was also charged with rape, lewd and lascivious acts with a minor, and sexual penetration. Nancy was sentenced to 36 years to life, and Philip Garrido received a sentence of 431 years. Good. JC declined to appear in court, but she did write a statement that was read in court by her mother, and I'm going to read the statement in full. Okay. I chose not to be here today because I refuse to waste another second of my life in your presence. I've chosen to have my mom read this for me. Philip Garrido, you are wrong. I could never say that to you before, but I have the freedom now, and I am saying you are a liar, and all of your so-called theories are wrong. Everything you have ever done to me has been wrong, and someday... I hope you can see that. What you and Nancy did was reprehensible. You always justified everything to suit yourself, but the reality is, and always has been, that to make someone else suffer for your inability to control yourself, and for you, Nancy, to facilitate this behavior and trick young girls for his pleasure is evil. There is no God in the universe that would condone your actions. To you, Philip, I say that I have always been a thing for your own amusement. I hated every second of every day of 18 years because of you and the sexual perversion you forced on me. To you, Nancy, I have nothing to say. Both of you can save your apologies and empty words. For all the crimes you have both committed, I hope you have as many sleepless nights as I did. Yes, as I think of all of those years, I am angry because you stole my life and that of my family. Thankfully, I am doing well now and no longer live in a nightmare. I have wonderful friends and family around me. Something you can never take from me again. You do not matter anymore. Wow. That's so powerful. And so, so powerful that she didn't say it herself. Like, it speaks so many volumes that she was like, I am not wasting Mm -hmm. another moment of my time in your presence. Yeah. She is like, you have stolen so much from me. I'm not giving you a fucking inch. No. So today, JC now heads a foundation for families in trauma. Oh, wow. And in January of 2019, after another kidnapping victim, Jamie Kloss, who I mentioned before, was found alive after having endured an all-too-similar trauma. 
JC gave a message to Jamie Kloss, writing, The road ahead will have many ups and downs. Allow yourself to grieve and move forward. Wow. Yeah. She is such an incredible, powerful person who has gone through so much. Well, and she went through something so unimaginable. Like, I cannot... I don't even know how to stretch my brain far enough to comprehend something like this. No, there's no perspective that I can have to see one-tenth of one one-hundredth of a percent of what she went through. Yeah. For 18 years. Yeah. And for her daughters to grow up through all of their most formative years in captivity. And never knowing anything other than that. Yeah. In some of my sources, it did name the daughters. I don't want to. Fair. So I didn't. Wow. That's my logic around that. I, I didn't want to. They've been through so much. And they don't need to go through anything else. No. And JC has used her experience to help others and used her story to get out there, to be able to support other victims of sexual assault yeah. and violence. And be an advocate and be a supporter. After all she's done, she's saying the fight is not over for so many other people. And I'm going to continue being their advocate. Yeah. She's incredible. Again, I highly, highly suggest y'all read her book, A Stolen Life. Wow. Holy shit. Um, uh, yeah. Postmortem? So, yeah, postmortem. So you start. Actually, no, I'm going to start I... because... Okay. I think this one goes to you because the strength and power that she had to survive something like this. We both had stories of some incredibly strong women. And Absolutely. ones who were faced with horrible circumstances. And, you know, Jane Doe and mine fought to be able to, you know, free herself and she took risks but yours lasted for so long before she was able to to have that opportunity and take that opportunity yeah. to free herself. And the fact that not only did he rape her, but he impregnated her and she had to have those babies. And just being 13 years old, giving birth and not understanding what's happening to your body, I can't even comprehend yeah. something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, having to honestly watch discovery channel or oxygen and figure out what does birth mean because i'm about to give birth i don't know what the fuck is gonna happen i mean she spent her first three years handcuffed she did she spent her first three years without real food and then just to be have to paste a smile on her face and go with the act because she knows every move she makes that's correct in his eyes, is just another day that her daughters are safe. Yeah. Uh, so I I agree. Your case was horrifying. And... Both of these were. The sheer... Yeah. Honestly, the sheer terror in both cases is, like, impalpable. It is. But, um... Okay. I am so glad that I still have wine left. Yeah, me too. Because um, I need it. <laughs> definitely. So do I. So do I. Well, after all of that, 
Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope this episode sheds some light into things. I honestly, yeah, I hate kidnapping stories so much because yeah, they just they. I feel like they happen so much more often than we would like to yeah. admit or that we can actually realize. But um, no, and both of these cases were personally triggering. It. This was a lot. This episode was a lot. Absolutely. So with that, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. We would love to hear what you guys want to hear and if you uh, like what we're doing. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Check out our website, Check out our merch store if you're looking and wanting to get some blood wine merch. Yes. We've got hats. We've got t-shirts. We've got dog bandanas. Max still needs a dog bandana. So does so Charlie. I need to get him Charlie one. Charlie really, really wants one. He's, he's been asking. Yeah. Um, But check out our merch store. Mugs, if you're not into clothing. uh, Bags, all those things. Yeah. But um, yeah, check it all out. But uh, with that... This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO, you guys. Bye. Bye.